his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up. Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs. Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. Instacart for the win. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. Thanks for joining us on Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. Today we're going to be meeting Beth DeStasio. She is a court-appointed special advocate in Luzerne County. You might know them as CASA volunteers. You've heard them on this program before, and today Beth is going to give you an idea of exactly what it's like if you've been thinking about becoming a CASA volunteer. And she has the passion for it, so we'll have her coming up in just a little while. But first, we'd like to introduce you to Jennifer Spittler. She is the Regional Department Coordinator at the Pennsylvania Department of Military and Veterans Affairs. She is working with veterans who are either just getting out of their service or maybe they've been out for a while and have questions. And she's also going to tell us about a new program where they can use the skills that they've learned while serving in the military for us here at home. Jennifer, welcome. And as the outreach coordinator, what exactly are you doing with the veterans? Uh, Paula, thank you so much for having me on today. So my position as the Regional Program Outreach Coordinator, I'm one of five individuals strategically placed throughout the Commonwealth serving uh, through the Pennsylvania Department of Military and Veterans Affairs as part of our PA Vet Connect program, uh, which is really a pathway to a better means of serving Pennsylvanians, uh, Pennsylvania veterans. It's a network uh, that we serve in our local communities um, between 13 and 15 counties that each of us cover. So I cover the northeastern uh, region of the of the state. And in that area, I work with local veteran organizations, um, veteran service officers, county directors, veterans, and their families on getting them connected to services that they need. When you're dealing with veterans, are they most of them just coming out of their service from the military? Or do you find that some of them who have been out for a while are also coming to you for for help? I'd say it's a it's a mixed bag. Um, you know, we get a lot of calls, either people who are just transitioning out of service and Pennsylvania is going to be their new home of record. Um, and they're looking at, you know, who's a local advocate that they can speak to about their benefits. Or, you know, we might get a call of um, someone relocating from another state um, or even just veterans, you know, that are um, aging in place in their homes um, that are looking for additional assistance. When we're talking about placing the veterans in jobs, mm-hmm. something new has come along. 
And can you explain what the uh, Pennsylvania law has done in order to hopefully make it a little bit more friendly for veterans to get certain jobs? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, pretty exciting. Uh, the Pennsylvania, uh, or PennDOT, um, as well as our department, the DMVA, announced uh, last month of a new law that waives requirements for Pennsylvania residents um, who are current or former former military members um, that operated commercial vehicles as part of their duties. And they'll, they'll be able to get that CDL um, knowledge test um, when they're applying for their CDL license. So, um, so that will be waived. Um, and so it applies um, those, those like I said, that, you know, former what they did in the military. Um, so if they drove combination type vehicles, class A or class B, um, similar, let those would apply in the test waiver. So it's pretty awesome um, development there in the law. But there are some that cannot be waived under the program, correct? Yeah, yeah. So double, triple and school bus endorsements cannot be waived in the program. Um, PennDOT will waive the knowledge test specified, um, you know, part of that. Uh, limitation under the um, uh, under the law. And do you find that a lot of the veterans that you have been dealing with have those type of skills and are just wondering where they can put them? With all veterans that we're coming in contact with um, is helping them transfer those skills and, and, and even realizing that hey, you know, the vehicles that you drove make you have a skill set that you can apply now that you're back into the civilian world. Um, you, know, you know, especially for those career veterans that served, you know, 20 years or longer, um, there really is a big transition, you know, and just trying to navigate all of that stuff. And so we want to, um, you know, share that with the business community and that, you know, they have those skill sets. And so, um, you know, something like the CDL already is a huge bonus. Um, some others that have strong business skills that they have um, that we always want to promote is that you know, these are people who are great networkers. Um, you know, they're multitaskers, they're mission focused, strong project managers, typically um, good decision makers and punctual. You know, my, my father was in the Air Force um, for 20 years and he always said, if you're 15 minutes, uh, early, you're on time. <laughs> so that's always been the staple in my family as well. So um, definitely can attest to that. <clears throat> Are there other skill sets too that maybe you're also looking into? Because again, with the CDLs, we've been hearing that there is a need for CDL drivers. And even in PennDOT, they are looking for people who, you know, snow plows and, and different things like that throughout the year. So do you think that this might eventually transition into other areas? Yeah, I think that there are other skill sets, um, you know, specifically like project management. You know, those are, those are skills that are highly desired, you know, and you think about where we are in the northeastern Northeastern Pennsylvania, a lot of healthcare industries here that are based having that project management skill set, you know, you're already kind of above um, kind of where you need to be and looking at those positions uh, opening and, and really strong candidate in those arenas. But yeah, the CDL, I think, definitely has opened some doors for businesses as we look at trying to get our veterans into those spaces. Some of the other things <laughs> that maybe we can also touch on, because I love to be able to talk 
to somebody who is able to help veterans because Mm -hmm. a lot of times the information is out there, but sometimes they just don't know where to turn. And Mm -hmm. it can be a very daunting experience, especially Mm -hmm. when you are going from military service back into civilian life. Are Mm -hmm. there things that maybe their branch of the military neglected to by for whatever reason, forgetting to tell them something, what would you tell them? Thankfully, there have been a lot of changes in all branches um, with military as they trans- as members transition out of service. One of there's kind of a checklist we always like to help guide uh, folks that are just newly transitioning out of service. And the kind of the first and foremost is to get that to CD two fourteen. Make sure to get you know served your country, and it's extremely important to have that document that shows what you did um, when you served. So, you know, doing that upon leaving service, you know, helps um, secure when applying for benefits. And one of the other things, too, that we always like to encourage once this COVID-19 threat passes is going to your local county uh, courthouse of records to have them um, secured there so that, you know, even though if you're young and spry and not thinking that you're going to ever need this document, um, you know, for some uh, VA benefit or or state benefit is to have that there at the local courthouse, um, you know, decades from now, you might um, not know where it is or have misplaced it and needing that and that will be there for you. Now that's something I did not know. Yeah, and that, that's something we always want to encourage. It's not required, but it's really something we want to encourage um, veterans to do, even if you've been out of service, you know, for a number of years, is go down to the courthouse office records and, and, and do that. Do yourself a favor. It's kind of like a safe box is the way I look at it, protecting that very important document, key to a lot of other benefits and support services that you might need um, down the road. The other is if you, if you need um, help getting access to that, say you don't have say you misplaced it many years ago and you need to get that DD-214, you can even reach out to our office, um, to the DMVA and calling um, 800-547-2838. And we can, one of our veteran service officers um, and or staff members can talk through getting that um, document. There's some others, you know, some other checklist things that we always want to help those that are newly transitioning out of, out of service is making sure they know that they can they can apply for federal health care and state benefits by calling their local county director of veterans affairs. So every county across the Commonwealth, all 67 counties has a county director. Kind of the first thing that I always tell veterans when I'm in contact is, hey, have you talked to your local county director? Do you know them? Or a local veteran service officer, um, you know, at a local legion or VFW that you can talk to. Let me put you in touch with one. Because they're your local advocates. Not only are they going to know, um, you know, all the state and federal benefits, they're also going to know local resources. So when they meet and talk with that veteran, they may uncover other issues of things that they might need support with. And so that's what they're um, kind of the you know, sphere, the head of the sphere there to help um, individuals with whatever they might need. So it's not too late then if someone no, has been No, it's never out. too late. No. It's, it's never too late and it's never too early. You know, I think I've always 
for those even that are still in service, but they are going to be transitioning out, start reaching out to your county director. There's no reason that you need to wait. If you, and you know, even if for some reason, Pennsylvania doesn't end up being your home of record, it ends up being somewhere else. There, there will be a local county director you can talk to. So start thinking about that when you're transitioning out of service. Maybe if you're not even sure what county you're going to end up in, but you want to know what's the veteran community like there. I want to have some support network. And that was one thing I think about when my father transitioned out of a 22-year service was we moved to an area that there were very little veterans. And so it was a complete transition into civilian life that was very different. And so one thing that I think we as family would have liked of having that network of other veteran families there as well. So you mentioned transitioning and, and maybe going somewhere else. So once you get yourself home, wherever you're going to call home, well, maybe it would mm-hmm. be here in Pennsylvania in one of our counties. You yep. the um the document that you mentioned leaving at the courthouse, would you have to then get that? back again so you could if you decided to go someplace else take it with you yeah i mean you should you can always keep a copy of for your own record but yeah i mean you it will always be there and you can always um have it transferred to uh the new county of your new um, home of record as well okay so So that county that county will work with you to do that. So that's something that, again, maybe a lot of people didn't even know or never even considered. So that's a a valuable piece of information. Let's talk about the PA Vet Connect program. That Mm -hmm. sounds like maybe it's part of what we've already been talking about. Yeah, so it's kind of a culmination of, you know, not just what our veteran service officers, our county directors, our local veteran organizations, everybody's doing a lot of amazing things to support our veterans in local communities. The challenge is, is navigating all of those resources. And part of our job is to make sure that veterans aren't falling through the gaps. So myself and my other um, fellow, we're called RPOX for short. And so we're sitting on a lot of these local community um, meetings and coalitions to advocate for those veterans, you know, where there's a voice. So whether it be part of the um, home, homelessness uh, continuum of care, um, you know, making sure that there's a space that we're finding out how to get veterans who are experiencing homelessness into transitional and permanent housing. Same goes for employment or whatever, whatever the issue might be, is making sure that there is some veteran advocacy there to get the help needed, as well as making sure we know what else is out there? We get calls and referrals from <clears throat> veterans and their family members for services that they might need. And so our role is to help them say, okay, for understanding the issue and putting them into a warm handoff to that person, whether it be the vet center or to a local nonprofit organization um, where they might be able to get some assistance. It's a lot of different things. When you're when you're talking about all of the different things, do you find that you get a lot of support and information from local veterans groups? There, especially, I can speak personally, just being in in the Northeast region, um, just having a lot of support from local um, nonprofit organizations. Um, you know, Camp Freedom, Valhalla Veteran Services, uh, Patriots Cove. Um, There's a number of amazing organizations that are doing a lot of work connecting with um, veterans. Uh, The same goes with our local legions, um, VFWs, and making sure, understanding what are what are they facing with when they're working with veterans. Um, What are what are there are there some common trends and need that our 
our office can help support. And one of those things that we're actually working on is a, an initiative to address rural veterans' suicide. We were approached uh, working with the Office of Rural Health at, through the VA to develop a program called uh, Together with Veterans. And right now, piloting it in Carbon County, and we have a steering committee made up of behavioral health specialists, uh, both from at the VA and local community. We have a lot of veteran representation um, from local community groups, as well as county directors, commissioners, all involved to really kind of understand, you know, what is, what is it that we can do to improve all of the work that we've been doing to address veteran suicide. Uh, Carbon County has the highest rate for veteran suicide in the Commonwealth, which is why we chose to start here with this initiative. I did not know that. So in part of doing that, um, you know, we're really trying to put together what are the stigmas, the challenges that even in a place like Carbon County that has a lot of great support, they have a veterans court, they have um, advocates, um, many, you know, many of advocates in that county that are, are helpful to their veterans. However, veteran suicide um, is a big issue there. And so we want to kind of take it from under the rug. And we know that um, we know that people don't necessarily like talking about it. It's a sensitive issue. But we do want to bring light to it and um, utilize this, this program as a public health initiative to address it. Have you come up with any reason why that number is so high? No, you know, that's one thing we're, we're just starting. So we're, we're hoping to uncover that, you know, during some of the um, analysis that we're going to be doing, working with all of the professionals that I mentioned earlier. But I do think, you know, across the board, anywhere, the reason why it's just a challenging issue to address is, is because of stigma, because it's just being a, a conversation you don't really have. Um, you know, even if, even if you know, veterans aren't necessarily willing to come forward that they might need help. And uh, I think it's something you know, as well as knowing the signs, I think are also a challenge for both uh, spouses or family members to know what those signs look like, don't necessarily look like signs. So I think it's kind of some of, you know, a complex issue uh, challenging there. Jennifer, when we're talking again about um, veteran suicide, we've, I've done a, a lot of interviews with different veterans groups that have support and mm-hmm. different ways of trying to help fellow veterans. Do you find as well that word of mouth is very important in getting veterans jobs, the help they need? Yeah, absolutely. Word of mouth. That's in part why, you know, our department put um, each of us in in the region is to kind of be having our ear, ear to the floor to hearing of what's happening in the community and kind of helping share that information of, what is available for veterans when and, and how. That's definitely the best way is, is word of mouth. And do you have a lot of the information for those locally? As you mentioned, you're in the Northeast region. So what what is your particular area then? So I cover um, 13 counties in the Northeast, kind of stretching from Brad and the Northern Tier, Bradford County over to Wayne and then down to from Northumberland over to a Monroe Pike area, Carbon County. So just before the Lehigh Valley. Do you have a lot of the contacts for those areas that if someone came to you and said, I need this, that you'd be able to be the one or would you be able to give them the information of where to go to get that kind of information? 
Yeah, I definitely could put them in the in the the appropriate context depending on what the question was. Um, you know, that's kind of my role is that referral resource. So, you know, not only do we get calls from veterans, but we also get calls from you know veteran service officers or veteran organizations on you know maybe they're working on a project or they're looking for a funding resource or they're looking for how to branch out what they're doing and collaborate with others um, that might be doing that work. You know, we're we're in a lot of different spaces that provide that opportunity to help others connect. Yeah, it definitely could um, reach out to to me or at, to the DMVA um, to reach uh, my office, which is remote right now. But <laughs> yeah, so definitely could be a resource for them. So how would someone get in touch with you if they're hearing this today and they're saying, I think I could use a couple of questions answered. I would have them contact the toll-free number and then there's an option that you can select the region that you're in. So you can reach myself or if you're in, if you're listening and you're in another part of the state to reach one of the other regional program outreach coordinators calling uh, 1-800-547-2838. You can also go to the DMVA website, www.dmva.pa.gov. And is there anything that you think maybe our audience needs to know that I haven't asked you about? I definitely want to mention two important things. One, if you're a veteran in the state of Pennsylvania, you should absolutely go on to our website and go to the uh, Veterans Registry. It's an extremely helpful free tool. Uh, electronically, we deliver um, timely information through what's called the DMVA Digest. So it's like a email that comes in every Wednesday. And not only are there um, employment opportunities, programs, events, everything that's specifically geared for veterans and their families. So you can register from your computer or mobile device at www.register.dmva.pa.gov. And the last thing I wanted to mention was we want to make sure that everyone knows that veterans and their dependents should never, ever pay to help to apply for veterans benefits. So if any company or organization says that they will do it for you for a fee, don't give them the time of day. (laughs) Uh, We want to make sure that you know that um, that's why we talk about uh, veteran service officers in your local community and your um, county directors of veterans affairs. You can always even reach out to us, put you in contact with them. They will charge you nothing and they will give you a lot of support. Scammers. They're everywhere. They are. It's awful. We're doing a big push on uh, pension poaching because there really is a, there's been a a couple of them creeping up even during this COVID-19 crisis is, uh, just trying to take advantage of people in a you know whatever situation that we're in right now, um, people being home and isolated more is, you know, calling them or sending emails about, hey, we'll pay for you to file for your VA benefits, and it's like, no, no, we'll get you a hundred percent or whatever, and making up, and it's like, no, 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 oh. don't do it. Before you go, I would just like you to once again uh, tell us about the uh, waiver applying to CDL and how people can find out more about that. So again, um, if you're interested in learning more about the partnership with PennDOT and and the DMVA um, with the new uh, waiver for the CDL license, you can um, even learn about that from our website at www.dmva.pa.gov. And there, there should be some information about that. The the form that you're going to be looking for is Form DL398, which can be found under Forms and Publications on our homepage. Jennifer, thank you. Yeah, thank you. That's Jennifer Spittler, Regional Department Coordinator at the Pennsylvania Department of Military and Veterans Affairs. 
Next on Special Edition, Beth DeStacio, a court-appointed special advocate in Luzerne County, and she has a lot of passion for what she does. Now on Special Edition, when someone asks Beth DeStacio what it's like to be a CASA volunteer, she's glad to tell them. Beth, it's that time of the year when the CASA is going to be looking for volunteers. And you have been with CASA of Luzerne County for how long? I was sworn in initially in May of 2017, so I'll be coming up on four years. So that is an extended period of time. First of all, could we let our audience know exactly what CASA is, what it does? Well, we are court-appointed special advocates, and basically um, a CASA goes through 30 hours of training, um, and that's classroom as well as presentations from individuals who are involved in the court system, um, Judge Rogers, people involved in children and youth, and we are trained in terms of advocating and what, what is in a child's best interest. So our role is to be the eyes and ears of the court and to advise the judge through getting to know a child as well as we possibly can, what is in that child's best interest. When you, back in 2017, got started in all of this, whatever made you want to get involved with those kind of qualifications? You know, honestly, there was a television commercial that I saw and I called a friend of mine who was also a paralegal and we both were just struck not knowing that this organization existed and not appreciating the need in our community. I never realized, I mean, currently we have over 500 children in foster care in Luzerne County, and I didn't know that such an organization of volunteers existed. So I did a little bit of research. I went to an information session, and, you know, as soon as I learned about the program, I couldn't think of a better organization to devote time to. I wonder, too, when you... You know, when you first get involved in something like this, you're dealing with, first of all, children. And then you're dealing with sometimes not such good situations with those who are caring for them at the time. So as, as a brand new person going into this, give, give me an idea of, of what happened. I mean, you, you go from obviously, well, here, let's do this first. Let's start back to the first day that Beth got the call and they said, we would like you to become a CASA volunteer. What happened then? You do have to go through some background checks and submit recommendations. And then my first experience really was attending class. At that time, pre-COVID, we had, you know, we got together in person. And um, so you go through the training before you become an advocate. I mean, you know, you start off and you learn and you go through 30 hours. And at the time I was doing it, it was um, during the week in the evenings. And then when you're done, that's when we have a ceremony with Judge Rogers and you're sworn in and you take an oath. So you're sworn in, you're, you know, I mean, it's just a matter of engrossing yourself in the training. There's so did courtroom observations. So I had an opportunity to see other CASAs um, who had gone through the program prior to me actually go to court and testify and, you know, provide their opinions to the judge, which is invaluable in terms of, you know, seeing the outcome of what you're getting ready to do. One of the things, too, that uh, whenever I talk about CASA, it, it always fascinates me that the people who are volunteers don't have a law background. Is that the same in your case? 
that's not the same in my case. I kind of have an advantage because I have been a paralegal since, well, age me, um, 1988. So, and I actually, um, I run my husband's uh, law firm. So I'm office administrator paralegal. So I had the advantage of having been involved in the civil side of um, a lot of litigation. I had never been involved in family court. So there was a learning curve there, but I did have the benefit of knowing how, you know, a case moves through the court system on the civil side. But it must be a different experience, and we'll get to that in just a moment, being in the courtroom yourself and having to be the one who presents. But first, tell us about the training. You said it was it happened in the evening. And again, if there are people who are listening who are interested, this and and now in the COVID world, a lot of it is or all of it is being done through Zoom or, you know, other other methods. But what exactly are, are you learning law are you learning psychology? Um, what do, what do they train you? How do they train you? It's very um, diverse. You learn about different cultures because in order to, when you are appointed an advocate, the first thing you have to do is leave any preconceived notions behind. So there's a lot of cultural training in terms of how different cultures and family structures, you know, interact that might be different than how we were brought up. There's training in terms of how a dependency case goes through the court system so we know what to expect in terms of, you know, how a child comes to be removed from a home, if they're placed in a foster home, things of that nature. So you learn that whole process as well. We um, learn how to gather information about that child and in an effort to get to know the child as well as possible and use all the resources at our disposable because as an advocate, you really do have, it's incredible. I mean, the order that the judge gives you, you pretty much have access to any person or, you know, organization that that child interacts with. So that includes teachers, doctors, coaches, therapists, medical care providers. And the more information that we gather, the better equipped we are to make considered recommendations to the judge. So a lot of the training is preparing you to do that. We bring in current advocates um, on panels, and I think that was invaluable to me because then you can ask people who are actually in it, you know, what ha- you know, because it, it is a daunting when you get assigned a case and the first time you go out to either a home or wherever you're going to meet this child, you know, it, it's a little nerve wracking. And um I do have to say that as nervous as I was, the second I met my first child, who was three years old, after that first visit, I was at ease. Because once you connect and you see what you're there to do and you actually see the child you're going to be advocating for, it's just a game changer. I mean, it kind of, everything falls into place and you realize you went through all this training, but then it's, yes, this is, you know, this is what I'm here to do. And for me, it was a little, you know, a three-year-old, it's kind of hard to think about how are you going to connect and get to know a child at three years old enough to advise a judge. But there are so many resources and in training, you know, we learn how to go about gathering information and um, keeping an objective uh, perspective, so to speak, you know, not passing judgment on situations, on, you know, facts that you read. You have to be very objective, which at times is, is difficult. Three years old, someone who can't even articulate to you how they feel or, you know, what kind of a, what kind of a situation they would like to be in as opposed to the one they're in. So 
Was that part of your training? Yes. I mean, although she could not articulate, uh, you learn that children, a lot of what we also learn is where children should be in terms of um, their maturity and growth, uh, you know, at three years old. So I knew what to look for. And we go through that in training, like what milestones should they be achieving? And a lot of times if they're not, you know, there's a reason for that. There's also behavioral um, manifestations. If a child is a, you know, victim of abuse or neglect, um, like I never knew that children would uh, hoard food. And that is when they come from a home that there isn't food and they get placed somewhere where there is ample food, they will still steal food and hide it at three years old because they've learned that food is not always available to them. So there was a lot of uh, instruction in that regard where, where you kind of, you know, hone in on what signs and symptoms to look for. And then there's, you know, resources in terms of we learn about different organizations in the community that help these children that I wasn't aware of. I mean, there's, you know, Child Advocacy, Advocacy Center, there are other um, organizations that help children who are the victims of sexual abuse. And you learn all the resources that are out there in the community that can help you when you are trying to figure out whether to make a recommendation that a child engage in these services or to reach out to the people involved to gather information. From the time that you met this first three-year-old, fresh out of, just got out of learning everything that I need to know, what was your initial reaction You know, you said you felt comfortable, but then you have all of this other going on where you have to make recommendations, where you have to deal with parents or caregivers. And that must just be a sometimes scary situation, Beth. There, there are moments where I wouldn't say as much scary as it's out. It was out of my comfort zone. Um, My first case, this little girl, if I could ever say, you know, there was just reinforced with me how wonderful this program is. But she was lucky enough to be placed with a foster family that fast forward almost two years later adopted her. So for me, it was um, trying to get to know her and the family dynamic that she was currently involved in, but also getting to know her natural mom um, and going and overseeing visits at children and youth to learn how she interacted with her natural mom. You know, you, you can't, give a recommendation until you look at all aspects. So it would not have been fair of me to just see her interact with her foster family. I also needed to see how she interacted with her natural mother. And eventually the court terminated her natural mother's rights. But in order to tell the judge whether I thought that that was, you know, a recommendation that would be in the best interest of this child, I needed to observe how she did interact with her natural mother. So there was, in her case... I will say that just as every child is unique, I think now that I'm on my third case, Acasa's role in each case is, we we have the same role, but it takes on different manifestations depending on the age of the child, the, where the child is placed and things of that nature. Like each of my cases has been so unique that it's, you know, it really is incredible. It's use all different skill sets, I think, depending on those factors. There is such a dynamic there. You've got foster parents, you've got the natural mom, you've got probably other other family members and other things going on. And here you are dealing with a three-year-old. Now, do you yeah. have the opportunity? You said you said you're on your third case now. Have you been able to see how the other two are doing? 
Sure. So my first case, um, because I was involved with her and she was such a young, you know, at a a young age, once she was adopted by her foster family, I keep in touch very, you know, once in a while I'll check with her now mom. The other two cases, my second case was a sibling group who had been removed um, from their home for domestic violence. And the one thing that, you know, you have to remember is these children are not only traumatized by the situation that requires them to be removed, but then sometimes they're also being removed from siblings. They're in a new environment. So I think one of the most important things and one of the most valuable things we do is we are we're that one consistent thing in a child's life. Like once they realize that, you know, we're going to keep coming back and you're going to see this person. And sometimes you're the only person that's consistent because at times like caseworkers, their, their cases will change and they might not have the same caseworker throughout the entire case. So my second case, the girls had been removed and it was for a shorter duration. They were ultimately placed with um, natural father And that's where they are right now. And I do, I continue to see them even though their case is closed out because I just developed a relationship with them. And the same will be true with the case I'm on now. It's a 16-year-old girl who was removed. She has eight siblings and they were all split up and she's by herself. And it's been a very difficult journey. I first see myself staying in her life just because she's Point blank asked me, like, no matter what, you're still going to be here, right? If this case ends and, and I've told her I absolutely will. That's just amazing that someone such as yourself and the other CASA advocates would get that involved with people that you have no idea that you would meet anywhere. And now here you are are helping to decide what kind of a path their life takes. Does sometimes that seem a little bit daunting Well, I think you do have to strike a balance. I mean, you do have to keep in mind that your role is to advise the court what is in this child's best interest. So I think it depends. It depends on the CASA and the situation. I mean, there are cases, as I said, my first case, it was in that child's best interest that when her case was over, the less she remembered about two years of going through, you know, a legal process that caused her to have to go to family court every, you know, so often she needed to be done with that part of her life and there's no need for me to be involved. You know, my second case, I check in on the girls. I'll, you know, meet them for lunch once in a while. It's not a requirement. And we always say that it's up to the child. If a child wants you to stay in their life and you're willing to do that, then that's terrific. I mean, there's some children who might not want that. So I think it's a case by case basis. I've just, you know, the girl that I'm assigned to now, a 16 year old girl who needs as much guidance as possible. She's been out of her home for, you know, over, over a year. And she's been in, when I first got involved, over 10, 10 placements. So that's a lot for somebody who's a teenager to go through. Wow. And she's made a lot of progress. I mean, she's, you know, when I got involved in her case, she was not involved in school. Now she is attending four days of in-person class and she's on the honor roll. Great. So, I mean, she's, yeah, she's come a long way. And to see things like that, you realize, what a valuable and important influence you can have on just one person's life. I just got chills. <laughs> that must that must be very rewarding when you see It is rewarding. You yeah. know, when you and and so now you have the reward that you hope is going to be there at the end. But what happens when Beth walks into that courtroom? 
Don't go away. Beth will be back to tell you on Special Edition. Casa volunteer Beth Destacio is going to court. But what happens when Beth walks into that courtroom and has to make her discussion to the judge to get questions from the attorneys to you know have all these other people in the room how does that happen <laughs> that seems well, very think, daunting to me <laughs> i mean anytime you have to t- i mean despite the fact that i've been involved in you know uh, the legal profession you know i am not a, a good public speaker so for me to get up on the stand or testify it is a daunting task. I think what I usually do is just keep in mind why I'm doing it, which, you know, that kind of outweighs my nervousness or whatever that is. So that's that's the first part. The second part is as long as you follow our training and you have done your job as an advocate and you have reached out to as many people as you can and you've objectively looked at things and you can, you know, get on a, a witness stand and say, you know, these are my recommendations and this is why. And and you have to be able to back up your recommendations. It's because you, you know, have spent time with a child. It's because you've spoken to their teachers. In the case where there was um, the natural mom's rights were terminated, you know, I wanted to be objective enough to say, I've spent time with natural mom. I've observed her with this child. And, you know, despite having done that, I still think it's in the best interest of this child that her natural mom's rights be terminated. So I think, you know, keeping your objectivity is one of the most important assets when you're in a courtroom because you don't want to look like you're biased. Right. You just want to make sure that your sole role is to be the voice of that child and to make recommendations based on everything that you have gathered, all the information you've gathered and all the time you've spent with the child. And, you know, a lot of times it's actually asking the child. I mean, it's not... And and it's a fine line between what a child wants and what's in their best interest. And our role is not to um, advise the judge what a child wants. It's our role to, you know, because what a child wants sometimes and what's in their best interest are two totally different things. When you're in that courtroom situation, Beth, and anybody, again, who is maybe even considering now that they're hearing what you're telling them, what was the initial you're in the the stand, so it's not like you're sitting at a table. You're in front of everyone. You said you're not a good public speaker. I no. I can say that I disagree with you there, but we that'll be for another time. So here you are. It's your first time. You have to. What's going through your mind? I have to say, I mean, if if you know your case and you're and you've done everything that we're trained to do. Generally, you're you're very well prepared, and and again, we have other you know we have advocates who have gone through this. So prior to you testifying, you know you're going to have met with your advocate coordinator. You're going to have the support of other advocates who have been through this before. It's a, one thing is you know Casa is a very there's always people to reach out for help, you know, and advocates are always willing to help other advocates or to share their experiences or to say you know this is what I ran into and you know this is this is how I handled it. And that might be helpful. Um, I mean, I can say, you know, when I was testifying in my first case and the natural mom's attorney was cross-examining me, uh, basically like, why do you think a judge should terminate this mom's rights? That's a daunting task because she's sitting in front of me. I don't take that lightly if my recommendation is that that a judge terminates rights to a five-year-old little girl. But I had been with the case long enough 
observed this child, seen the trauma she had been through and continued to be subject to through her relationship with her natural mom, that I didn't have a doubt in my mind that her natural mom's rights being terminated was in her best interest and that the only chance of her having the wonderful life that she now has is for this foster family to adopt her. So, I mean, I think the more passionate you are about the case, it's not as much daunting, you know, as, as long as you know what you're testifying to and you're prepared. We're ready. You know, it's not like you're walking in and you haven't or had the opportunity to um, prepare for it, ask questions. So I, I don't I think anybody who goes to the training or looks at this program, I mean, anybody can be a CASA. You just you know, you just have to care about the welfare of these children. And it's once you meet them, it, I'm telling you, it's just it, it really is life changing. And how many are out there now who are looking for volunteers? Children? I believe there are a little over 500 children in the in Luzerne County's foster system at the moment, and I think and don't hold me. I think we only service about 10 percent of those children at the moment. So um, I would say, I mean, anyone who even has questions, we have information sessions, obviously via Zoom in light of the pandemic, but we have them regularly, and then we have another training class in the spring, um, in the beginning of March, but. You know, anyone who even has remote interest, I would encourage you. It's it, it truly is one of the most rewarding experiences I've had. And going on my third case, you know, I mean, I just I think I've seen three very different cases, but I can also take a step back and know that I positively influenced these th- these children's lives in in some way. Did you ever think about quitting? Um, I wouldn't say no. I mean, our, one thing we really do ask is we ask if you are assigned to a child that you stay with that child through the pendency of the case. And I, and I think that it's so important because, as I said before, these children see a lot of people come in and out of their lives. And I think once you make a commitment to a child, you know, you need to see it through. So I have never considered that. Um, have I gotten frustrated at times? And absolutely. I mean, it really, sometimes you don't understand how, you know, how these children can, can be put into the situations they are. There's times that things take a lot longer than you want, but I would just say, you know, I have gotten frustrated, but I've never thought of quitting. No, I have not. And how have you not just taken them home with you? (laughs) Well, number one, we're not allowed to, Um, (laughs) but uh, you know, I, I think the important thing is you have to keep in mind what our role is. Our role is not to uh, replace what a foster family would do. I mean, and right now, the, the little girl I do advocate for who's 16, she's asked me that. Why can't you just take me home? And, you know, I have to explain to her because that that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to help you through this process. I'm here to, you know, advise the judge what's in your best interest. You know, I'm here to support you, to help you. But I think it's very important that we keep our role, and as one of my friends likes to say, we stay in our lane. And our lane is our role as an advocate to be the voice of the child and to be the eyes and ears of the court because they don't have the opportunity to, you know, see the child in their surroundings. You know, they see them in a courtroom. How much time do you put into all this? It truly depends on the case. They would like for um, us to see our children at least once a month. And I would, I would say, on average, I would think a typical case would be between 10 and 20 hours a month, but it depends. Like one week, it could be, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, the next week, not so much. 
I think it really depends on the case. It's, I mean, I work full time and I can still fit it in. There are times that I do see my current child more than once a month. There's times where I see her, you know, because of weather or whatever, but usually it's once a month is ideal unless something is going on that would require more. And then obviously if there's court hearings, we, well, we used to attend them in person. Right now they are via Zoom. But that's another really important role is that, you know, children, when they get to the courthouse, when we were in person, that's really nerve wracking. If you haven't been over to the courthouse before. So another thing in my first case that was very important is, you know, I would meet her on the first floor as opposed to up where natural mom is. And like there's all chaos and it's everybody wants to to get to this child and I would meet her downstairs and then talk to her before we would go up and it would just take out some of that nervousness. I mean, you know, for, for a little kid to have to go into the courtroom, it's, it's, it's nerve wracking. I think that you are the best advocate for getting involved in CASA. Because we have so many wonderful advocates. I mean, and I, I appreciate the compliment, but I mean, there are so many advocates that are, are just amazing. And they they do come from all different, we have retired individuals, we have school teachers, we have so many different professions. And I don't think a lot of people realize how many children are in Luzerne County who are in need of someone to just really take an interest and stand by them. I I don't even know what to say, Beth, except that I certainly hope that if anyone is interested, that this has given them the extra oomph in order to make the call. I would highly, I would encourage anyone who has even, it is such a worthwhile program. We need more volunteers. And uh, I would really ask you to, our website has a wealth of information. Just go to LuzerneCountyCasa.org and there's all the information on upcoming information sessions and a little bit of more detailed information on what we do, the events we hold to raise awareness and raise funds to support our cause. So I would really encourage you to do that. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories, a production of Intercom Communications.